Time for another podcast with Father Z. They may call you doctor, they may call you chief, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil. We welcome as our guest today St. Augustine of Hippo, great bishop and doctor of the church from North Africa of the 5th century. He died in 430. And today we'll look at his commentary in Psalm 85. It's from the Enerationes in Psalmos. This is the second reading from the, the Office of Readings for Wednesday in the 5th week of Lent. Also, we'll talk about how to participate at Holy Mass, and I'll be making some comments about, uh, well, it's getting to be an almost legendary modu proprio, by which we hope uh, Pope Benedict XVI will be de-restricting the older form of Mass. I have a few things to say about how we should approach this document and what our attitude should be when and if it comes out. Might be living in a mansion You might live in a dome You may own guns And you may even own tanks You may be somebody's landlord You may even own banks But you're gonna have to serve somebody Augustine's commentary on Psalm 85 Was actually a sermon uh, When Augustine preached there were stenographers present who wrote down literally everything he said, and they worked with great accuracy, even recording his little side comments, uh, like when something happened in the church or outside of the church. Sometimes he even re- they even recorded the crowd's reactions and what they shouted, and uh, they would they would applaud and shout, and they were very active and interactive with Augustine when he preached. And sometimes he would even say, "No, be quiet, be quiet. My voice isn't very strong, and and if you're not quiet, you won't be able to hear me." Because apparently Augustine didn't have a very strong, a very powerful speaking voice, and so people had to be quiet when he was preaching. But this commentary was preached on the vigil of the feast of St. Cyprian of Carthage, who was a figure of titanic importance for Catholics of North Africa. And we're not sure exactly about the year this was preached. Some There are different proposals. Some say it was 401, and others say it was 412. Others say it was 416. But the, you know, even though we have a range of years there, we do know that it was delivered at a town called Mapalia, outside the walls of Carthage. And this is where Cyprian was buried. Now, it's important to contextualize these readings and these sermons so we can get a little bit more out of them. Uh, The reason why it's important that it was at the tomb of Cyprian uh, 
is because in North Africa in the ancient times there was still a strong influence of pagan practices on Christian celebrations of feasts. And because Cyprian was supremely popular among the Carthaginians, his feast uh, wound up sometimes degenerating into a kind of an orgiastic party around his tomb of people gorging and drinking and doing less than virtuous things and lots of music and songs and dancing and all that kind of thing. Now, well, as a matter of fact, in, in 401, uh, which was one of the proposed dates for this sermon, uh, the bishop of Carthage, famous Aurelius of Carthage, banned dancing for the Feast of Cyprian, and the people rioted in the streets. And so, you know, here we see a, uh, Aurelius has brought in a, a, a visiting fireman to put out the, the flames, as it were. He's brought in Augustine of Hippo to preach to his people for this feast. Now, another thing that we should do to contextualize this sermon is to remember that uh, at this time, there's still a lot of confusion uh, among different groups of people about the relationship of the Lord's divinity with our humanity. And as a matter of fact, in these patristic readings we're getting from the second reading in the Office of Readings, uh, we are hearing how they're constantly going, especially Leo the Great is going back all the time to uh, the prologue of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, today we're going to hear Augustine using the same passage. And uh, later on in this much uh, much longer sermon than, than we are used to hearing today, this is just a tiny little excerpt we're going to be hearing, uh, but in this very long sermon, Augustine mentions a group of heretics uh, that we know as Apollinarians. These were followers of the teachings of a certain Apollinaris, who was bishop of a place called Laodicea. And Apollinaris uh, had wanted to defend the divinity of Christ, uh, very worthily, against those who denied that Christ was God. And he wanted to defend the unity of Christ's Godhead with our human nature. And so far, you know, he's right on track. However, it partly is a result of the confusion over these newly developing theological technical terms such as nature and person and so forth. Those are brand new ideas and brand new terms and they really weren't quite sure what they meant by these new technical terms. They were seeking for a brand new vocabulary to describe all these things as they worked out these relationships and difficult questions. Well, Apollinaris slid into denying the existence of a human soul in Christ in his desire to defend Christ's divinity. And for Apollinaris, the human soul was replaced by the divine logos, the divine word of God. And so for Apollinaris, Christ was perfectly God, but only imperfectly a man. He had a human body, but no human spirit or soul. And his teachings were eventually condemned by the Council of Constantinople in 381. Now, that's just a little bit of historical background for our sermon today, but it helps us to understand what Augustine is trying to do. He's trying to defend the unity of the humanity of Christ with his divinity, but also the perfection of his humanity and the perfection of his divinity. Now, before we dig in, I would only bring up one last point among all these points. 
And that's how Augustine talks about the union of Christ and his people. It's one of the consequences of the unity of his divinity and humanity. So intimately bound up are we all with Christ that when we pray, he prays in us. And so listen to this sermon of the great doctor of grace and maybe think about how you participate at Holy Mass and how rich your participation at even at the services of Holy Week can be. Remember that when we pray, Christ is praying from us. So here we go with Augustine, a little snip of Augustine's commentary in Psalm 85, preached in the early 5th century near Carthage by the tomb of St. Cyprian. Exeneratiónibus Sancti Augustini Episcopi in Salvos. Nullum maius donum prestare posset Deus hominibus, quamud verbum suum, per quod condidit omnia, faceret illis caput, et illos eitam quam membra coaptaret, ureset filius Dei et filius hominis. God could give no greater gift to man than to make his word, through whom he created all things, their head, and to join them to him as his members, so that the word might be both Son of God and Son of Man, one God with the Father and one man with all men. The result is that when we speak with God in prayer, we do not separate the Son from him, and when the body of the Son prays, it does not separate its head from itself. It is the one Savior of his body, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who prays for us and in us, and is himself the object of our prayers. He prays for us as our priest, he prays in us as our head, he is the object of our prayers as our God. Let us then recognize both our voice in his and his voice in ours. When something is said, especially in prophecy, about the Lord Jesus Christ that seems to belong to a condition of lowliness unworthy of God, we must not hesitate to ascribe this condition to one who did not hesitate to unite himself with us. Every creature is his servant, for it was through him that every creature came to be. We contemplate his glory and divinity when we listen to these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. Here we gaze on the divinity of the Son of God, something supremely great and surpassing all the greatness of his creatures. 
Yet in other parts of scripture, we hear him as one sighing, praying, giving praise and thanks. We hesitate to attribute these words to him because our minds are slow to come down to his humble level when we have just been contemplating him in his divinity. It is as though we were doing him an injustice in acknowledging in a man the words of one with whom we spoke when we spoke when we prayed to God. We are usually at a loss and try to change the meaning. Yet our minds find nothing in Scripture that does not go back to Him, nothing that will allow us to stray from Him. Our thoughts must then be awakened to keep their vigil of faith. We must realize that the one whom we were contemplating a short time before in his nature as God took to himself the nature of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men and found to be a man like others. He humbled himself by being obedient even to accepting death. As he hung on the cross, he made the psalmist's words his own, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we pray to him as God, he prays for us as a servant. In the first case, he is the creator. In the second, a creature. Himself unchanged, he took to himself our created nature in order to change it, and made us one man with himself, head and body. We pray then to him, through him, in him, and we speak along with him, and he along with us. Orat in forma servi, ibi creator hic creatus. Creaturam mutandam non mutatus assumens, et secum nos faciens, unum hominem caput et corpus. Oramus ergo adidum, peridum, inilo, et dicimus cumilo, et dicit nobiscum. That was part of Augustine's commentary on Psalm 85, which was a sermon preached at the grave of Cyprian of Carthage. And you can see how Augustine makes a great effort to explain the intimate bond we have with Christ. You know, what was not assumed by God, the Son was not healed. And that's a constant, a constant refrain of the fathers who were fighting for an orthodox doctrine about the union of Christ's divinity with our humanity. And as a result, uh, Christ had to have a true human nature with a complete body and soul, as well as perfect divinity, and they had to be in an intimate bond so that our humanity could be healed without being absorbed or destroyed. And Augustine, 
uh, in the passage that we heard applies the consequences of this intimate union to how we pray. And so this whole sermon uh, develops into a beautiful treatise on prayer, how we should pray, what, sh what we should pray for, and the conditions of our lives in which we need to pray. And Augustine also talks about divisions in the church uh, caused by Donatists who argued for a church of the pure only to the exclusion of all those that they thought were unworthy sinners. And he speculates about what hell might be. Oh, they're marvelous. It's a very rich sermon. And you would not be wasting your time to read this whole sermon and to savor every word. It's long, but it is worth the time. what does the prayer really say and in the articles that I've been writing for the Wanderer for years I've been talking about translations and uh, the accuracy of the translations with a view to help people participate better at Holy Mass to participate with what is truly uh, active and conscious and full participation at Mass and this uh, this commentary by Augustine can maybe help us understand something about our participation. Now, Augustine, when he talks about Scripture, he says that, that in every word of Scripture, Christ is speaking. Sometimes it's Christ the body, when he's speaking in kind of a lowly way, uh, because of his union with our humanity, you know, he speaks as a servant and a creature, and sometimes Christ is speaking as the head of the body, and there are times when it's Christus totus, the whole Christ and entire is speaking, always speaking to God the Father. Now, if we take this same model, perhaps we can apply it to our liturgical participation. And this is, I think, suggested very well in um, in what Augustine is talking about when he talks about prayer, that Christ is praying in our voices. 
and we pray with him and in him and through him. And even this is something that we hear at the end of the canon, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer in whole, at every Holy Mass. Now, uh, think about how this works. This model of Christ the body, Christ the head, and Christ together. We can see Christ the head very well manifested in the person of the priest. We can see Christ the body very well manifested in the person of the congregation gathered there. And there are times when the priest is speaking to the Father, and there are times when the people are speaking to the Father, and there are times when they are both speaking together. And so we have Christ the body speaking, Christ the head speaking, and the whole Christ, whole and entire, when they are both talking together. But what this means is that when you are at Mass, and you have uh, your opportunity to respond to what the priest invites you to do, and you are able to make acclamations, and you are able to uh, pray with the priest at those moments when you're all praying together, your voice is Christ's voice. And this is made possible by the fact that you're baptized. You're a member of the body of Christ, the church. And so when you enter into the sacred building, the sacred precincts of a church, and the liturgical action begins, remember that it is truly Jesus Christ who is the actor up there. But Jesus Christ is not merely the high priest up there in the person of the priest. By baptism, you also have a kind of a priesthood. You have a share in Christ's priesthood, not in the same way that the priest does, but in your way as a baptized person. And so Christ's, uh, Christ takes your hands and makes them his, and your knees when you kneel, and your voice when you speak. You have an intimate bond with Christ the priest, and therefore you should also listen very, very carefully to all that happens at Mass, even when it's not your time to say something. Your real active participation is first and foremost an act of receptivity to everything that Christ is doing for you. And then this act of receptivity then bursts out at times in outward expressions. So every time you go to Holy Mass, remember, Christ makes your voice his voice. And therefore you should prepare well to celebrate uh, all these sacred mysteries by your participation at Mass. You should be in a state of grace when you receive Holy Communion, which is the most perfect way of participating at Mass, because you want to receive all of the wonderful graces that Christ desires to give you. Hello, hello, baby. Hello, has it been? How long you gonna keep me wondering? How long before you see stalling me was wrong? How long? I'm sure that just about all of you who are listening to this podcast all 
also read the blog, What Does the Prayer Really Say, which you can come and visit and read and post comments on. That's WDTPRS.com, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. All of you are as interested in this upcoming motu proprio from Benedict XVI as I am. Uh, the Holy Father is supposed to be supposed to be one of these days putting out a motu proprio that is a document on his own initiative, a document that doesn't necessarily uh, correspond to some synod that there was or some other action that he's taken, but it just comes out on his own motion, on his own uh, accord, uh, about de-restricting the use of the 1962 edition of the Roman Missal. It's the last missal that was issued before the beginning of the Second Vatican Council. Some people talk about it as the Tridentine Mass, but it's not really the Tridentine Mass. The Tridentine Missal issued way back by Pope Pius V. Well, it was immediately they began to adapt it and change it and so forth. But uh, we can call it the Tridentine Mass as kind of a shorthand. Well, when this document comes out, when and if it comes out. I think it's very important that we embrace it in the proper way and avoid things that can be very damaging not only to us but also to our legitimate aspirations. Remember that uh, the Holy Father, late Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, talked about our legitimate aspirations in his motu proprio of 1988 called Ecclesia Dei Adflicta. He said that, that all these desires that we have for older forms and traditional forms of liturgy are legitimate aspirations. And he commanded by his apostolic authority that pastors of souls be very generous in applying the church's legislation so that people who have these legitimate aspirations can benefit from these beautiful perennial forms which have so enriched us and and given us uh, uh, saints and beautiful architecture and art and music and all these things through the centuries. Well, if we have these legitimate aspirations and we perceive these things as being of a benefit for us, then we have to embrace whatever the Holy Father gives us in the proper attitude. And that's why I came up with five rules of engagement for when and if the motu proprio comes out. Now the first of these rules of engagement is that we should rejoice, be genuinely joyful because our liturgical life has been enriched and not rejoice because we win. You see, everyone wins when the church's life is enriched. This is not a zero-sum game. Just because, you know, I'm benefiting now doesn't mean it takes something away from you out there. Or if there's some group out there that's benefiting from something that's legitimate, uh, a truly legitimate thing, then that doesn't mean necessarily that we are being diminished because they are benefiting from something that's been given to them. This is not a zero-sum game. The second point is do not strut. I think that we understand that a lot of people with these traditional uh, aspirations have been treated with a good deal less kindness than we might hope for. So we should be uh, gracious to people who have in the past not been so gracious in regard to our legitimate aspirations. 
do not strut when it comes out. Be very gracious. The third point is show genuine Christian joy when you do anything having to do with the older form of Mass. If you want to attract people to something that you think uh, is very good and something that gives you consolation and happiness, then be both inviting and joyful. Nobody will be attracted to it if you're moping around about it. Avoid the sourness that some of the more traditional samp stamp have been wearing on their faces and sleeves for such a long time. They're so kind of grim uh, about about all things having to do with the traditional forms of of mass that uh, a lot of people just don't want anything to have the anything to do with them. So show so joy and be inviting in your joy. A fourth point is get engaged with the whole life of your parish. Don't let uh, what you do close you in in a little ghetto where you don't want to have anything else to do with people who don't want to attend the same mass that you want to attend. Get involved with the whole life of the parish, especially if there are works of mercy being organized by your parish. If you want the whole church to benefit from the use of the older liturgy, then you who are being shaped by the older form of Mass should be of benefit to the whole church in concrete terms, especially in work of mercy. This is kind of like a way of putting your money where your mouth is. A fifth point is, if the document... If this motu proprio comes out and it doesn't say everything that we might hope for, don't whine about it. Don't pick at it. Don't carp at the Pope. Don't criticize the document as if you know better what ought to have been done. As if you were, you know, the church's own, you know, your own personal church's little Pope. We need very often to speak a great deal less about our rights and what we deserve or what things ought to have been and speak a great deal more about our gratitude, our gratitude for what God gives us. All of these things are gifts. They're all gifts. Yes, of course we have rights as as Catholics too, but remember when something comes out and it's not exactly the way that we want, it doesn't really help us to gripe and moan and carp and complain about it. Show some gratitude, show some joy, be inviting, be gracious, don't strut, and get involved in concrete ways that demonstrate to all of the people who look at you and know that you want these older things, these traditional forms, these legitimate aspirations, that you are ready to give back to the church from which you are ready to receive so many good things. Father Z, signing off.